The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. When I told Gil I'd like to talk about karma this year, he said, we talked about karma a few years ago. <laughs> I don't know if it's stuck, so we'll do it again. <laughs> it's always good to think about action. Particularly because it is the Buddhist teachings on karma are probably the most misunderstood part of the teaching. Um, Buddhist teachings on karma came along basically on the same plane that Hinduist teachings on karma came along. It's all part of the same baggage, and some of the baggage got mixed up. Um, so we have some confused ideas about which teachings are Buddhist and which teachings are not Buddhist on karma. Also, we don't see that the teaching on karma is really inherent in the teaching or relevant to your lives sometimes, or whether it's a desirable attitude to develop. Um, some of the problems revolve around three basic issues. One is the content of what the teaching seems to say. It sounds deterministic. It sounds as if there's no free will. You're, you suffer things because of your past karma. And there's no, no way you can change your past karma, so there you are. Um, if you see it as deterministic, at the same time, you, it sounds like it justifies the status quo, that rich people are rich because they were good, poor people are poor because they were bad, and there's nothing you can do about it. Again, this is not what the Buddha taught. This is what it sounds like. Sometimes it um, seems to use, be used to justify evil actions. Um, I'll be surprised if in the course of the day the issue of the Holocaust doesn't come up at least once uh, because it's usual an issue that has to do with karma. The question was, you know, were, the just, were the Nazis justified by in holding the Holocaust? Does the karma, teaching on karma justify their actions? The answer is no, but some people think it does. Secondly, it seems to be talking about how people deserve to suffer. If they're suffering, will they deserve it? Um, again, the teaching doesn't say that. We'll have to understand why. Uh, there's talk, talk about questions of fairness. Um, are we trying to make the world fair by inventing a teaching on karma, which explains inequalities? Um, are things fair in the world? Um, if you believe in something psych uh, deterministic in this way, then it would seem to be psychologically damaging. You know, people are already suffering, and then you tell them, they say, well, you're suffering because you deserved it, and that just makes it worse. So those are some of the questions people have about the content, or misunderstandings people have about the content. Um, misunderstandings based on how you apply the teaching. It seems to be focusing your attention on the past and the future, and not on the present. In other words, if everything you're experiencing now came from the past, then everything important that happened in the past, not right now. Or that you're doing good now so that you get some future reward. There doesn't seem to be any focus on the present moment. Final problem about misunderstandings is given what we believe it says, um, people have a really bad emotional relationship with the idea of karma, I've noticed. On the one hand, it seems to be about, about punishment. Nine times out of ten, when you talk about the issue of karma, people will think, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to suffer for X, um, which is not how the Buddha introduced the topic at all. As it seems to promote fatalism, it seems to pr promote passivity, callousness toward the suffering of others, complacency towards your own good fortune. Now, all of these are misunderstandings about the teaching that I would like hope to clear up today. And the best way to do that is to start looking at the teaching in context. Remember what the Buddha said, he taught, he said basically two things, suffering and the end of suffering. Okay. Um, and his focus on this issue, 
And by the way, that, those are two things. Sometimes you see, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. Well, the Buddha never said that. He just said, all I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. So there are two things there. I've heard some people say that the Buddha said he taught one thing, the suffering and the end of suffering, i.e., the end of suffering is when you learn how to accept that it's suffering and that's, that's the end of the problem. It's not the end of the problem. <laughs> it's just the beginning of the solution. He did teach two things, but it, the focus is on why we're suffering and what we can do to put an end to suffering. Um, this comes from a common reaction to suffering. He says we basically react to suffering in two ways. And this applies to us way back when we were children up to the present. One, we're bewildered by it. Why is there this pain? Why am I suffering? And secondly, we start searching for someone else to help us put an end to the suffering. We're looking around. Is there somebody out there who knows how to put an end to suffering? In the beginning, it was our parents. And then from our parents, it moved to other people that we looked for to put an end to suffering. Now, you put those two things together, bewilderment and search, and you can get some pretty deluded searches. And so the Buddha felt that the most useful thing he could teach was to provide wisdom so that people can approach the problem of suffering without bewilderment, and they can do the search in the right way and end up learning the skills that they need to put an end to their own suffering. Now, putting an end to suffering is something you do. It just doesn't happen. You actually have to create the causes or conditions that will lead you to the end of suffering. Um, and because it's something you can put an end to it, there must be something you're doing right now that's actually causing the suffering. If it were beyond your control, if it was something you were not responsible for, you could not be able to do anything about it. But the fact that you are actually creating the suffering, this is the suffering, the Four Noble Truths, through craving, you're creating it, you can make the changes inside that will put an end to suffering. So the Buddhist teachings are about doing. In fact, throughout the teachings, it's about, he always is talking about processes and doing. He talks very little about things. He doesn't, he's not interested in things in themselves or the description of the universe as a whole or any kind of systematic philosophy of that, that kind. He's more interested in the questions about action. And when you're acting, what's happening? What role does intention play in action? What, what's the role of effort? What kind of results do actions have? And particularly, he doesn't teach just karma, but also how to make it karma skillful. How can your intentions and effort be made skillful in order to give rise to a good result, which would be the end of suffering? So everything in the Buddhist teachings, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, Dependent Core Rising, deal in these terms. What you can do um, to put an end to suffering. In this way, wisdom is pragmatic. It's not speculative. In other words, we're thinking about wise ways of actions. We're not thinking about just speculating about time and space in general. And therefore, because it's pragmatic and everything is focused on doing, the Buddhist most basic teaching is on karma. In fact, wisdom begins with understanding karma, and particularly the distinction between skillful and unskillful karma. I'd like you to look at passages one and two for a minute. The first one, the Buddha said, this is the way leading to discernment. This is how it starts. When visiting a contemplative or Brahma to ask, what is skillful, venerable sir, what is unskillful? What is blameworthy, what is blameless? What should be cultivated, what should not be cultivated? What, when I do it, will be for my long-term harm and suffering? Or what, when I do it, will be for my long-term welfare and happiness? Now, the wisdom here lies in several things. One is that you realize that your happiness or your suffering depend on your actions. It's what you're doing that's going to give rise to these results. And the doing does make a difference. In this sense, if you speak in this sense, okay, the Buddhist teachings are dualistic. I once knew a 
even a Hindu monk one time who was telling me one time, people came up to him and said, how can we get beyond dualism? He said, what's wrong with dualism? You're talking to me, aren't you? <laughs> okay. And you know, it's up to you to decide. Do you, would you rather be happy or would you rather suffer? Or is it, are you indifferent about that? Now, the Buddha is assuming you're not indifferent, that you would really prefer to be happy. You would really prefer pleasure. You see that long-term is better than short-term. That's the other aspect of wisdom right here. And you also see that you can learn from others' others' experience. You look for someone who's trustworthy, you try to get some information from them. So this is taking that search and directing it to the right person. When the Buddha's talking about contemplatives and Brahmins here, he's talking about noble ones, people who have already had at least a taste of the end of suffering. So wisdom begins here, looking at your actions to see whether they're skillful or not, and particularly learning to see what's going to give rise to long-term happiness as opposed to short-term. I mean, short-term, anybody can do. You go down to Starbucks. But long-term is something that's going to take more time, more energy, require more attention. And you're willing to do that. That's the sign of wisdom. Passage 2 talks about wisdom as as a pragmatic, strategic part of the mind. The Buddha said there are basically four courses of action. Things that are pleasant to do and give pleasant results. Things that are unpleasant to do and give unpleasant results. And those two, he says, basically are no-brainers. If it's something pleasant and it gives good results, you're going to do it, no problem. If it's unpleasant to do and it gives bad results, you're not going to want to do it. The real problems are these other two. Something that is unpleasant to do, but when done, leads to what is profitable. He says, it's in the light of this course of action that one may be known as a fool or a wise person. For a fool doesn't reflect, even though this course of action is unpleasant to do. Still, when it is done, it leads to what is profitable, so he doesn't do it. Thus, the non-doing of that course of action leads to what is unprofitable for him. But the wise person reflects, even though this course of action is unpleasant to do. Still, when it is done, it leads to what is profitable, so he does it. And thus, doing that course of action leads to what is profitable. Okay, the, the wisdom in here lies in your ability to talk yourself into doing what you don't like doing, but you know it's going to lead to good results. So wisdom has to be strategic. You have to know your own mind. What's going to motivate you to do these things that are difficult to do, but you know that in the long term are going to be profitable? And just the opposite is the next paragraph. Okay, there's something that's pleasant to do, but when done leads to what is unprofitable. Now, the fool doesn't think about what it's going to lead to, and just thinks, okay, I just like doing I'm going to go to do it. So he does it, and then he suffers. But the wise person reflects, okay, even though this is pleasant to do, still when it's done, it leads to what is unprofitable. So you don't do it. And thus not doing that course of action leads to what is profitable for you. Because essentially, wisdom has to be pragmatic and strategic. You have to look at what can I do to motivate myself to do the things that are hard to do but are going to be beneficial, and to stop doing the things that are pleasant to do but are going to be harmful in the long term. This element of motivation plays a very large role in the factor of the path called right effort. It's called generating desire to abandon unskillful things, generating desire to develop skillful things. So for the Buddha, wisdom here is not wisdom about you know, sort of the world out there, taken on its own terms, it's more wisdom about how you act in a skillful way. One, knowing what's skillful, and then two, learning how to motivate yourself to do what is skillful and to drop what is unskillful. Are there any questions on that?
point so far. Is it too early in the morning? (laughs) Okay. So I'll go on to the next point. So, from this basic principle, the Buddha says, it is possible to overcome suffering through your own actions. Therefore, making that proposition, he has to answer a couple questions. One, what is action? Two, how does causality work between actions and results? We're talking about actions being skillful. Well, how does that causality, how does that work? And how do actions cause suffering? And how can action put an end to suffering? That's the issue about skillful and unskillful. Now, these are going to get into technical metaphysical issues. In fact, this is the metaphysical, metaphysical issue that the Buddha gets involved in. Sometimes you're, you're here that the Buddha never talked about metaphysics. Well, questions of what happens in action, that is a metaphysical question. We're going to be talking about that. But it's the one that he gets involved with, because it's the only one he really needs to talk about. But before that, let's look at some of the psychological issues surrounding action. Um, when you're training a child, what do you want that child to understand about action so it'll grow into a healthy human being? Yes. Actions have results. One, they have results. What else do you want your kid to know? Some actions will lead to harm. Some will be harmful and some will be beneficial. Mm-hmm. They control their actions. They make their They make choices, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to suffer from, or we're, we're going to benefit, or we're going to reap the results of our actions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they can have unintended consequences. How about if you know that you've done something harmful? What you should, what should you do? Give it up. Apologize. Learn from your mistakes. Mm-hmm. Everybody's getting gr- the right answers right so far. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Hmm? Developing care that you have done something. Yeah. Hmm. You have to be care. Um, one of the things that everybody here is assuming here is that you learn how to admit your mistakes. You don't cover them up. Okay. Otherwise, you've got everything in the basic, <laughs> the basic things. Okay. Think before you act. Choose carefully what you want to do because you do have the power of choice. Your actions do have results. Some are going to be harmful. Some are going to be helpful. If you see you've done something hurtful, stop doing it. If you see you've done something harmful, resolve not to repeat it. Apologize if it's possible. And then admit your mistakes. Go and ask somebody what would be a better way to do something. Come and tell mommy. Come and tell daddy. Of course, mommy and daddy have to be the sort of person who the child comes in and says, you know, I made a mistake, I just totaled the car, what do I do? And they don't, and they don't freak out, okay? <laughs> okay? So essentially, this is what the Buddha was teaching his son about action. Okay. Look at passage number three. Okay. okay. The Buddha's here talking to Rahula. Now, this is right after he talked to Rahula about the principle of truthfulness. You got the feeling that when the Buddha came to see Rahula that day, Rahula had told a lie. Because the first thing the Buddha does, and this is the part that's not in the set passage here, 
the Rahula sets out a, bucket, a, pail of, a jar of water and a dipper for the Buddha to wash his feet. So the Buddha washes his feet and he leaves a little bit of water in the dipper. He says, look at this water in the dipper. See how little water there is? And Rahula says, yes. And the Buddha says, that's how little goodness there is in a person who feels no shame about telling a deliberate lie. Okay. And he takes the water and he throws it away. He says, see how the water is thrown away? Rest, yes, 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 yes. Okay. Um, you get the point. There's no goodness to a person who, who, who feels no shame at telling a deliberate lie. So he's establishing the principle of truthfulness. And this is really important that you be truthful about your actions. Then he builds on that. He says, what do you think? What's a mirror for? Rahula says, it's for reflection, sir. He says, in the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, and mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to perform a bodily action, you should reflect on it. This bodily action I want to perform, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Is it an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it would lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both, it would be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results, then any bodily action of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, it would be a skillful bodily action with happy consequences, happy results, then any bodily action of that sort is fit for you to do. In other words, he's teaching him, okay, look at your intentions before you act. What do you hope to accomplish by this action? And if you see that it's going to be hurtful, you don't do it. Now, here he's teaching him the principle of compassion. You don't want to harm anybody. You don't want to harm yourself. You don't want to harm others. But he's also teaching the principle that you do have choice. You can choose not to do it. The same applies to verbal actions and mental actions. Now, while you're doing it, you reflect in the same way. I don't have to read through the whole paragraph here. But it just points out, if you're doing something and you see the reflect automatic, the immediate consequences are are harmful, you give it up. If they're not harmful, you continue with it. This teaches you an important principle about action, is that not, not all the consequences are going to come a long time afterwards. You spit into the wind, and it's not going to come back at you in your next lifetime. You know? <laughs> it comes back right now. Okay. That's going to be an important principle as we get into the Buddhist teachings on causality. Part of the results of actions come immediately. Okay, then after you've performed the action, then reflect on it again. Okay. If you saw that it did lead to self-affliction, the affliction of others or to both, it was an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results, then you should confess it, reveal it, lay it open to the teacher or to a knowledgeable companion in the holy life. Okay, this is teaching several things. One, the principle that there will be unintended consequences sometime. In which case, okay, even though your intentions were good in the beginning, you found out later, ah, it didn't lead to what I thought it would. Learn from that. That becomes part of your new range of experience. Okay. And then secondly, you, as he says, it lay it open to the teacher and a knowledgeable companion in the holy life. You look for somebody whose advice you respect. And you talk to them about it. One, you say, look, I made this mistake. And hopefully they will give you some advice on how not to make the mistake again. Or they, you can ask again, if you're the parent... The kid comes in and says, look, I got my girlfriend pregnant. You say, well, don't ever do that again, okay? <laughs> <laughs> we'll deal with what you did, but no, don't ever do it again, okay? okay. Um, and then, okay, once have you confessed it, then you exercise restraint in the future. So you make up your mind you're not going to repeat that mistake. Okay. 
If you reflect and you see that it did not lead to affliction, it was a skillful bodily action with happy consequences, happy results, then you should stay mentally refreshed and joyful, training day and night in skillful mental qualities. Okay, okay you should be happy that you did something well. Some of us who were raised in a Christian background, we were taught that no, no matter what good we did, it was because God and it wasn't really our own goodness, so she wouldn't be proud of it. That doesn't really help you along the path. If you can see yourself, okay, I did something right, that gives you energy, it gives you encouragement. And so you make up your mind that you're going to continue on the path, day and night, in skillful mental qualities. However, that, the same principle applies with verbal actions. Now, if it was just a mental action, you don't have to confess it, okay? It goes down and says, if it was an unskillful mental action with painful consequences, painful results, look at these, <laughs> look at these verbs uh, and adjectives. You should feel horrified, humiliated, and disgusted with it, okay? <laughs> you should feel ashamed of yourself, okay? Now, ashamed of, not so much ashamed of you as being a bad person, but you should be ashamed of the action. The type of shame that the Buddha is teaching here is the type of shame that comes with pride and self-esteem. I'm a good person, that action is beneath me. That's a healthy kind of shame, because it teaches you, okay, you don't want to repeat that mistake again, and it was something, and, but it doesn't say that you're a bad person. Having felt a healthy sense of shame, then you exercise restraint in the future. But if on reflection you saw that your thoughts did not lead to affliction, they had happy consequences, happy results, and again, you should stay mentally refreshed and joyful, training day and night in skillful mental qualities. Then the Buddha goes on to say that everybody in the past, in present and future who purifies their actions is going to do it in just this way. All through this repeated sort of reflection, looking at your actions and the consequences. So he's teaching compassion, integrity, a willingness to admit your mistakes. He's teaching you to have a healthy sense of shame around your mistakes. In other words, you don't debilitate yourself with remorse, but you do recognize it was a mistake. I don't want to do it again. Okay. So these are some of the principles that the Buddha is teaching. In fact, this is one of his first introductions. I always like looking at the way the Buddha taught children because it gives you a really good sort of basic outline for looking at some of the more advanced teachings. And so here he's teaching the, these qualities of compassion and integrity. At the same time, he's also beginning to teach about causality. You do have free choice. There is a pattern to the world. You can learn from your mistakes yesterday. And if the, if the patterns of, of actions were not constant, the lessons you learned yesterday you couldn't apply to tomorrow. Things would change too much. But here the Buddha is saying there is a pattern. You can learn from your past mistakes. Some of those consequences of your actions will show up in the present. Sometimes some of them will show up in the future. So you have to be willing to look at both. Okay. So basically he's saying you do have free will, which means the world is not deterministic. You are responsible for your actions. It's not somebody else acting through you. Your actions have results that can be beneficial or harmful. In other words, you're an agent in shaping your own happiness and pain. Those results follow a pattern, as I said earlier, and that knowledge is worthwhile. You can learn from your mistakes and then apply it further down the line. It's your knowledge that's going to make a difference in your actions. And your actions are going to make a difference in your experience of pleasure or pain. 
And this is why the Buddha taught, because he was giving knowledge that people could use that would help them. One more passage I'd like us to look at, and we'll open the floor for questions. In the canon, you rarely see the Buddha going and approaching other people to attack them for their views. It happens only over one issue, and the issue is determinism. And on the one hand, and teachings of total chaos on the other hand. He actually seeks these people out and starts questioning them. It's the only issue that he actually goes out and you know, corners people, <laughs> colors them. And here he is, okay, he says, there are these three sectarian guilds that when cross-examined, pressed for reasons and rebuked by wise people, even though they may explain otherwise, remain stuck in a doctrine of inactivity. Which three? There are contemplatives and Brahmins who hold this teaching, hold this view. Whatever a person experiences, pleasant, painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, that is all caused by what is done in the past. There are those who hold this teaching, this view, whatever a person experiences, pleasant, painful, or neither pleasant or painful, that is all caused by a supreme being's act of creation. There are those who hold this view, whatever a person experiences, pleasant, painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, that is all without cause and without condition. Okay. So he says, having approached the first group, I said to them, is it true that you hold this? That whatever person experiences is called caused by what was done in the past. Thus asked by me, they admitted, yes. Then I said to them, then in that case, a person is a killer of living beings because of what was done in the past. A person is a thief, is unchaste, a liar, a divisive speaker, an, un, an abusive speaker, an idle chatterer, covetous, malevolent, a holder of wrong views because of, because of what is done in the past. Okay. When one falls back on what was done in the past as being essential, there is no desire, no effort to, at the thought that this should be done or this shouldn't be done. When, can't, when one can't pin down as a truth or reality what should and shouldn't be done, one dwells bewildered and unprotected. One cannot righteously refer to oneself as a contemplative. So the Buddha is basically attacking the idea of determinism by saying it makes people, it deprives you of any motivation for being skillful in your actions. It leads you, again, as he says, bewildered and unprotected. Think about that, what the Buddha said about our reaction to suffering. Okay, we're bewildered. We don't have anybody to help us. Okay, we're bewildered and unprotected because we believe in a deterministic view like this. So this, this kind of view cannot be helpful in putting an end to suffering. And so the view that would put an end to suffering is one that would give you, give rise not only to knowledge about what should and shouldn't be done, but would give you the desire so that you can make the effort to do what should, what you should do. So there's no proof against determinism, but he says it makes life miserable. It closes off the idea of a path to the end of suffering. So. And the same goes for believing that everything was caused by a supreme being's act of creation. Again, it's basically a deterministic view. Um, I've been reading some medieval theology recently. Just to get back in my old... I, I, I majored in medieval theology in college, I have to admit. Um, and I, of course, as, as you can see, I've changed my, changed my opinions about some things. Uh, but what always struck me was that you know, the whole question about free will, if you've got a God, how do you explain free will? How do you explain suffering? And the traditional answer was always, is anything that's good in the world, God did it. If anything's bad, he didn't do it. You know? <laughs> and... He, 
they get into trouble that way. Um, my favorite question was one that Abelard asked. You remember that one, Karen? Could God, could God, God, could God have done better than He did? This drove all the theologians crazy because if you say He could have done better than He did, then you're saying God was a slacker. <laughs> if you say He couldn't have done any better than He did, you say that's a pretty miserable God. <laughs> That's a little off the point. Um, <laughs> okay, then finally, the Buddha approaches those who, who teach that there is no cause or condition for pleasure or pain, no cause or condition for your happiness or your experiences. And then again, he says, then there's really no cause or condition for people to be killers or thieves or stealers, liars, unchaste, divisive, all these bad things. So there is no effort or no desire to do what should be done and to abandon what shouldn't be done. And people are then left bewildered and unprotected. Okay, again, there's no solution to the problem of suffering. So the Buddha is basically saying, even though there may, there may be no full proof you know, that things are not determined, but if you believe that things are totally determined by the past or that things are totally without cause and condition, there's no motivation to do anything skillful or to abandon anything unskillful. And you're left without a way to put an end to suffering. So the Buddha does have to take a position on, this, on these issues. Things are not totally determined by the past. That's a metaphysical position that the Buddha does take. Things are not, your experiences are not totally without cause or condition. There are causes, there are conditions. Now that much he takes a stance on. Okay. Are there any questions about that so far? Yes, Jeff. Uh, at the beginning of the uh, Rahula passage, the Buddha says, uh, Rahula, you shouldn't tell a lie even in jest. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a lot of conventional humor is based on uh, kind Lying of a mental jest. sleight of hand, jesting, mm -hmm. you know, deception. How, how do you uh, advise working with that or changing that humor? Are you talking about changing other people's humor or your humor? <laughs> <laughs> well, mine. Yeah, okay. Because um, you can't change other people's humor. But you can look at yourself. I mean... What is the humor that you have always remembered the best that struck you, that struck you as being most, worth, most worthwhile? It was the humor that was true. And we think about the great humorists of the past, you know, people like Mark Twain, Ambrose Bierce, Will Rogers. We remember them because they spoke the truth. So, I mean, there are ways of looking at a situation and seeing the humor in it and seeing the humor in the truth of the situation. And that makes your humor a lot more, th more worthwhile. And you, know, you go down the other forms of wrong speech, divisive speech, a lot of humor is divisive. Coarse, a lot of humor is coarse. Idle chatter is pure silliness. I mean, there's so much humor it forms in, you know, goes into the forms of wrong speech. And so you should say, okay, wait a minute, just make it your own principle. I'm, whatever amusing things I want to say, I'm going to try to say things that are true. Like, you know, like Mark Twain's piece on the fly. Did you ever read that? He says, you know, the fly, you know, don't think that the issue of intelligent design is something new. Um, he talked about, let's look at the fly. Now, this, this is a sign of pure intelligence. Intelligence with no compassion. Now, if any person had invented a fly, they would be ashamed to have their name associated with it. You know? A fly that comes and feeds off the face of sick people. 
a fly that you know irritates people when they're dying. And it goes through all the horrible things that flies do. They spread disease. And, you know, if anyone invented this, I mean, they would be driven out of the human race. You know? <laughs> it's all true. <laughs> the question back. So based on your model of the, uh, using the great humorous as, as an ideal, I don't know if it was Will Rogers that said, "Never let, um, never let a lie get in the way of um, telling a story." Yeah. <laughs> so it's in, it, depending on your interaction with people. I mean, it could be inferred that you're lying mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just for the butt of the joke. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> On the other hand, people you, people are can be deceptive and tell you a story and finesse it and change it. You find out <clears throat> later it's an ex- total exaggeration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how would how would you look at that? Okay, well, you just be careful of those people's speech. Mm-hmm. And you really can't control other people's mouths, but you can control your own. And you just make it your principle that you're not going to lie. If it's part of their character, it's somebody you actually like, you know, family member. Yeah. I'm thinking of brother-in-law who's very funny, uh, Irish background, and uh, <coughs> comes from a tradition. Uh, in fact, I heard on... about the Irish. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thinking of uh, NPR was on this morning while I drove here from Saratoga, mm-hmm. and... Um, they were saying in, in Irish uh, storytelling that you can make a comment that has five different meanings. Mm-hmm. I heard the same thing about Tamil language in India. Uh-huh. The word has five different meanings. At least one of them is the name of a food and the other's name is a sexual position. <laughs> I've forgotten the other three. <laughs> So I guess what I'm saying is I find my brother-in-law very comical, but I always hold back. I know now that he's possibly not telling the truth, and I may call him on it, but I don't know if I see any real harm there. Because for the most part, he makes everybody laugh in the family where it could be very serious. But um, Okay, that's his, that's his humor. Your humor. Yeah. You wanted to say something. Well, you, there's plenty of things in any situation that are humorous and true. And it's actually a service to point those out to people. And I do from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Mm-hmm. Question here? A friend of mine um, called me yesterday very upset. And she said, did someone tell you this about someone else Mm -hmm. and And indeed he he had Mm -hmm. told me something about someone else Mm -hmm. and I knew that she was inflamed because he told her about this this similar thing about someone else and she thought it was a betrayal Mm -hmm. of that person and I very quickly intuited that if I said yes that she would call that person and become enraged at that person mm-hmm. and 
and um, start a big problem with that person dividing him from her, me, and the person he was talking about, dividing the person that he was talking about from him. And so I found myself against all my principles saying no, mm. because I thought it was the least divisive thing to do. If you're going to take the precept against lying, you have to think about these things beforehand. You know, someone comes up to you and you do, have you seen my husband with this other woman? Well, yes, you have. But you don't want to tell her. So you would ask her, why? Are you, are you, are you suspicious of your husband? And that changes the topic. To learn how to change the topic really quickly. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm seriously. I mean, there's things you, you don't want to lie. You've made this promise to yourself you're not going to lie. But there are cases where you know it's going to cause a lot of trouble if you tell the whole truth. So change the topic as quickly as you can. Mm -hmm. Oh, here's a microphone. But if the person is asking you, can't we give some credibility to that person, um, sensitivity that you might be able to uh, speak to them openly? Again, you have to read the situation. Yeah, if I you understand. feel that you can handle that person and calm her down. Well, I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm just thinking kind of purely at the moment when you're asked, you have, a, in a sense, an obligation. Not necessarily. No. Um, sometimes you f the Buddha says if, there's a, if you know that it's going to give rise to greed, aversion, oh. and delusion, okay. the truth is not to be told. But this, he's, not saying not to, he's not saying to lie. He's just no. to avoid that topic. Mm -hmm. Now, if you feel you can talk to her and get her calmed down, then go ahead. Mm -hmm. But if you don't feel that you're capable of doing that, then you say, okay, this is one topic I have to just remove myself from. Mm -hmm. And this principle applies to all the precepts. It's not that you just take the precept and run into things. Right. You should anticipate. If you're making the precept not to kill, okay, make sure your house is immune to termites um, and all these other, other things that you might feel tempted to kill at some point if you found that they're eating your house. Um, and the same for the principle of lying. You've got to be prepared for, there are situations where people are going to ask you something that you know you really shouldn't tell. And, and you shouldn't tell because it would create affliction. It would create affliction, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think this kind of assumes that we all know the outcome, and we don't. Okay, sometimes in that case, in that case, sometimes a truth. good outcome comes as a result of someone not being calm and taking action to correct things. In that case, okay, if you feel that it's okay, go ahead and tell the truth. Well, I, well, I think the difficulty is here, in the short term, we don't really know the outcome. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, what was being said before was that maybe we can assume that someone else perhaps has more knowledge than we do. Mm -hmm. And maybe our sharing our knowledge can help them make mm -hmm. a choice they need to make. Okay. The point I want to make, though, is that most of us, it's the choice is either between telling a lie and telling the truth. And the Buddha is saying the choice is between telling the truth and not speaking. Sometimes that seems like a sin of omission to me. That's oh. Yeah. Okay. The precepts don't cover everything. You know. Yes, Pat.
question is on how do you develop healthy remorse when it's just related to mental acts? Because mm-hmm. I find that um, if a mental act like constantly judging other people, when mm-hmm. I I don't know how to have be have a healthy remorse about that rather than just creating more suffering for myself by mm-hmm. being judgmental about me. Mm-hmm. So if you have some suggestions on how do you develop healthful Healthy remorse is basically enough that reminds you, I don't want to do this again, but doesn't get down on you as being a bad person. Um, Also, this whole thing about being judgmental. I mean, you do have to make judgments. We have to do this all the time. I was, um, and, and the Buddha talks about, you know, wise standards for judging people. But if you find that you're using unwise standards, you say, okay, that, that wasn't really a wise thing to do. And you remind yourself, okay, why it's harmful to you, why it's harmful to the other person. But never get into the thing that I am a bad person because I do this. Right. This, for me, this also has a corollary to what is the correct attitude? Well, what is the... I have a question about <laughs> thoughts. And um, is every, sometimes I've, I've heard or I feel like the mind can come up with anything mm-hmm. and I don't feel much connection Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I made myself have that thought, mm-hmm. but it's there. But it's there, and then I've heard other um, experiences shared where, if you're really concentrated and you can watch your own intention around that thought. So mm-hmm. I'm a little confused as to, you know, these thoughts that I don't really want to have and get judgmental about. Mm-hmm. Did I really produce that thought, or is it just my mind playing? I'd say it's past karma coming in. And what you're responsible now for now is your present karma, how you're reacting to it. I mean, I've, I think I've mentioned here before the, the image of thinking of your mind like a committee. Lots of people in the committee with lots of different opinions and lots of different agendas. And the committee as a whole is not responsible for everything that gets brought up to the committee. They are responsible for what they decide to do about it. So just because these things are brought up doesn't mean that you have to beat yourself up over them or get or feel responsible. I mean, there was must, there must have been something you did in the past that brings up this kind of thinking again, and you can you say, okay, because I had that kind of thinking in the past, it, it's become kind of a habit. Here it comes up, even though I don't want it. This is a good reason. To say, okay, the next time it comes up, I'll just not get involved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I think that um, a true understanding of karma would generate just compassion mm-hmm. based on that. And um, I'm working for a county department of behavioral health, and they're introducing an initiative to um, utilize trauma-informed care across mm-hmm. their system. And I think that's exciting because I think they should call it karma-informed care <laughs> because it's the idea that people's behaviors are coming from something that's happened and that instead of that there's something wrong with them, looking at them as what happened to you. And I think if we do that within ourselves and with other people, um, that's looking at the karma that's generated what's happening now and that that has the effect of um, creating compassion and how we're dealing with things. So. Yeah. Well, it comes down to this principle we'll be getting to in a, in a minute about you do have free choice in the present moment. 
and you're, 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 you're operating on that assumption that the people have had these bad experiences, but now you're giving them some options that they can choose from. Because many times their, their sense of their options has been limited by what they've experienced in the past, and what you're trying to give them is new tools and sort of expand their range of, of, of options. Give them space and also provide them with some alternatives. Because many times people who, especially people who've been traumatized, can't think of the alter- alternatives. Yeah, and I think we're all kind of going on the traumas of our mm-hmm. lives, everyone. So. Mm-hmm. Tony, you had a question? I don't think I'm the first one to be confused. Is this on? No. Now, yeah. I'm not, I don't think I'm the first one to be confused to find the, the notion of free will or free intention uh, confusing because I'm not sure what it's free of. Is mm-hmm. it free of conditions? Um, I'm not sure what it means. For me, I, I, uh, I, I hold, uh, uh, I, I find it more useful to, to think in terms of skillful and unskillful rather than free or not free. Well. I'm not sure what free means. Free means that you can see choices and you're not totally determined by past conditions. Some some past conditions can have an influence on you. But there is that element, and this is what you're you're, you're anticipating uh, a later teaching today, which is that at that moment where you really do have some freedom of choice, that's the point in your mind that you really want to get to know. Because that's kind of the doorway into a more ultimate freedom where you're not totally determined by conditions. And so you're trying to get to know that, that point when you do really do have a freedom of choice. What's actually happening there? When you have an intention and then you choose not to follow it or then you choose to follow it again. What happened in the meantime? And you finally make a choice. Usually it's a sense of what's skillful or appropriate, what's going to... Okay, that's, beca- that's because you've been trained in that direction. Yeah. Oh. Never mind. Is this on? Yeah. Um, I don't want to question the Buddha, but. um, (laughs) You'll question me, okay? You know, looking. Okay, thank you. Um, A deterministic Mm -hmm. perspective on things or a nothing makes sense chaotic perspective on things. Um, the fact that they would remove motivation and uh, improve, that doesn't necessarily disprove that sort of backwards it's not reasoning. Proof. It's not proof. But he's saying, look, if you want to put it into suffering, you cannot hold these opinions. Your proof right. comes with the, the success in having put it into suffering. So it's not really a proof, but he's saying, look, if you want it into suffering, you cannot take these assumptions. Okay, thanks. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, there's a passage in here um, about self-affliction um, and afflicting others, and um, I've—I believe there are stories of the Buddha giving up his life mm-hmm. uh, uh, to save the life of another, mm-hmm. or. Uh, well, uh, so would that 
the intention is good, but um, isn't that self-affliction? Okay, well, you have this, these stories come in the Jataka tales, and there are two approaches to the Buddha's uh, mistakes in the Jataka tales. Because he doesn't only give up his life, but he also, there's times when he actually kills and steals, has illicit sex, gets drunk. And four out of the five precepts get broken in the Jataka tales. Now, it's important to notice the one that doesn't get broken, he never tells a lie. Okay. Um, and there, as I said, there are two ways of interpreting the Jataka tales. The Mahayana version is that the Buddha was already enlightened as a bodhisattva in the Jataka tales. Therefore, he's teaching skillful means that there are times when it's okay to kill and okay to steal and okay to all these other things. The Theravada take is that he still was learning the ropes. And so he made mistakes in the Jataka tales. So in that particular case, I'd, I'd, I'd chalk that up as one of the Buddha's mistakes. Although he would say, if you're, if, it, if you're, I mean, I don't know if the Buddha says this, but there's a there's an old Thai tradition that if you know if, if your honor, is, if it's either your honor or your life, is to be willing to give up your life. But again, that's that's not that that would be not seen as self-affliction. That would be okay. You've protected something that's more important. Yes. I have a question about the meditation instruction that you gave. Mm-hmm. You ended the meditation uh, saying that um, to stay with the breath even after you open the eyes. What does that mean? How do we? Okay, do just that? be aware of kind of the breath energy in your body. You don't have to be with the in and out breath, but just the sense of are you carrying tension in your body? How does the energy feel flow? How does the energy flow feel? Try to be sensitive to that. So, so say I'm talking to you now, right? Mm-hmm. So how are your hands? How are your hands? How are your hands right now? Holding the mic. No, but are they comfortable? Are they relaxed? Okay. How's your arms? How are your legs? Does the energy flow feel relaxed? Okay. So, so uh, it's only about the body, or about the mind and the thoughts. Also? Well, you're, you're trying to you're trying to stay grounded in the body. Okay. 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 Should we move on? Okay. Now the Buddha's teachings on causality. Okay. Starts out with the principle of this cause that is called this-that conditionality. When this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the stopping of this comes the stopping of that. And you say, okay. He's basically talking about two different principles of causality here. The first one is when this is, that is, and when this isn't, that isn't. We're talking about things that arise and pass away together, simultaneously. So this is causality in the present moment. This comes, that comes immediately. When this stops, that stops immediately. The two of them have to be there together or there's neither of them together. So that's called synchronicity, things happening at the same time. The other one is from the arising of this comes the arising of that. From the stopping of this comes the stopping of that. That can be either immediately in the present or the relationship can be over time. Diachronic. You put the clothes in the the dryer, half an hour they come out dry. That's over time. Something about synchronous will be more like you turn on the light switch and immediately the light's on. You turn off the light switch and immediately it's off. 
Um, this is particularly appropriate when we talk about things happening in the mind. Certain, as soon as there's a certain emotion in the mind, there will be certain other th- feelings, other certain other things will be happening immediately. And when it stops, they stop. Other times, you get something in, in, you get something set into motion, and the results are going to last for a while, or the results may come at a later time. Now, the fact that you've got these two causal principles working, which is what this is why Buddhist causality is complex. Because what it means is that some of the things that are coming in the present moment are the result of what you're doing right now. Some of the things you're experiencing in the present moment are the results of things you did in the past. Um, some of the things you're doing right now will give results right now. Some of them will give results into the future. So you've got a very complex basis for feedback loops here. You can have, and feedback loops can be either what they call positive or negative, and that doesn't mean good or bad, but positive means that it strengthens something, negative means that it weakens. A positive feedback loop would be like you put a microphone next to a speaker, and it just gets louder and louder and louder suddenly. A negative feedback loop is a thermostat in the room. The heat goes up, it turns off. The heat goes down, it turns back up again. It's something that moderates the influences. So you've got these feedback loops, which means that things are complex. We don't have to go into all the details right now. We'll never finish the day. <laughs> but if you take it as, as you know, one of the basic principles of any causality, where you have these two types of causality interacting all the time, things are going to be very complex. And so what you're experiencing right now, you may be doing lots of good right now, but you're not seeing the results yet. Well, it doesn't mean that it wasn't good. It just means that your past influences coming in are obscuring the results of what you're doing right now. Or, in a case you get, you see often is someone gets a lot of power and they do horrible things and you say, why isn't lightning striking them right now? You know? They've got some good past karma. You know? That's protecting them. So this is why karma is complex and why it's not immediately obvious to everybody that you do good, you get good results, you do bad, you get bad results because things are complex like this. In particular, you may have heard that t- the teaching that if you want to see somebody's past actions, you look at their present condition. Or if you want to see their future condition, you look at their present actions. How many of you heard that? It's wrong. <laughs> you look at their present condition, there are a lot of past actions you can't see. They just haven't borne fruit yet. And the same with their future conditions. Sometimes something, <coughs> what they're doing right now, Maybe just one influence on the future. Lots of other things may also be influencing the future. So it's a lot more complex. This also means that we don't have one karmic account. And this is going to be very important as we go through the day. You know, the idea that you can see sort of the sum total of somebody's good and bad past actions by what, you know, the running, the running balance they have right now you know, in the account. Because we don't have just one account. The Buddha's image for karma is that there's lots of seeds in a field, and there are going to be many seeds. Some of them are sprouting now, some of them are not sprouting yet. So by look, looking at a person right now, you do not know their karmic background. You know a few things about their karmic background, but not the totality. So keep that in mind. The important thing here is that given the fact that your present actions do have some impact in the present, that's the room for free choice. Your present actions are not totally determined by your past conditions or your past actions. You can make a difference right now. So the component factors of any present moment that you're experiencing will be 
One, present actions. Two, the results of present actions. And three, the results of past actions. So when anything comes up, you ask yourself, okay, which, is, which could those be? You know, so that you know, unwelcome thought comes up. You say, well, is that a present result of a present action or is it a result of a past action? You've always got that choice to look at. Well, who are you? <laughs> okay. Um. Sorry. I'm sorry. I yeah. burst mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this confidence of the, of a stance that you're having right then, mm-hmm. saying, "Oh, you have a choice," and then if you're, you know, skandhas and etc. I mean, you're. you're I don't. Okay. We have, all this, this means we have to dig really deep. Okay. You are not skandhas. Okay. You have made yourself, your sense of who you are, out of the skandhas, right. out of the khandhas. But that's just something you've made. Yeah. Okay. It's, you're not stuck with those skandhas. Okay. okay. The Buddha never defines what you are. Right. You define what you are. And he says you're defining yourself in an unskillful way. There are more skillful ways of doing this. Mm-hmm. Now, eventually you get to the point where you don't have to define yourself anymore. Okay. And we define ourselves as part of our strategy for finding happiness. Because your strategy for finding happiness assumes two things. One is there's a you in there that's going to experience the happiness, and there's also things that you have under your control that you can manage so you can bring about that happiness. Now, without making those assumptions, you wouldn't be acting. So as part of just finding happiness within the conditioned realm, you assume a self. Right. Now, the Buddha is saying, okay, you use that assumption, so let's, let's be more, a little bit more skillful about what we're assuming about ourselves. And you finally get to the point where you reach a happiness that doesn't require that anymore, mm-hmm. and then you drop it. Okay. Nowhere along the line does he ever say what you really are. Right. So when you're saying you, you have a choice, mm-hmm. you're doing it in the conventional sense mm-hmm. rather than... Because mm-hmm. yeah. the Buddha never talks about what people are or no. are not in an ultimate I, sense. Yeah, yeah I, I know. I just got caught there yeah. when mm-hmm. you said mm-hmm. you, you have a choice. Well, as long as you're making yous, let's let, make some skillful ones. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what he's saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are many passages in the canon where he talks about using your sense of self to motivate yourself to practice, mm-hmm. to do the skillful thing. He talks about the three, what he calls governing principles that help, help keep you in line in the practice. One is the world, one is the Dharma, and one is yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the self here would be, you know, if you really loved yourself, you would go for the highest happiness, Right? So that's actually a useful motivation on the practice. Mm-hmm. That using the Dharma as your motivation is this is a wonderful Dharma I've learned. Um, this, uh, be, it would be a shame to just let it pass. So I should, I should work on it. My favorite one of the list is using the world as, your, as a governing principle. It says, out there in the world, there are people with psychic powers who can read minds. They might be reading my mind right now. You know? <laughs> so I just don't want to think some of these things. Okay. So that's actually using your sense of self as part of the motivation on the path. Mm -hmm. And the sense of the self is what I call the consumer. If you really care about your happiness, the happiness that you're going to consume, you want to do the best causes. Now there's the self as a producer, and again, you you can use this as part of the motivation. There are people out there who have gained awakening. They can do it, I can do it. Now that's a that's a healthy use of the sense of self. Mm-hmm. It's actually it's, it's it's called conceit, but 
that's said to be, you know, the self as a producer. I'm capable of doing this. And you want to use those assumptions until the part where you don't need them anymore, then you drop them. Okay? I like that. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, got that cleared up. Okay. Yes, yes. So I'm going to restate something. I'm not sure if this is a good way to phrase it or not. But um, so I I understand the the sense of using the sense of self mm-hmm. to act skillfully, mm-hmm. and in my own experience, when that sense of self is felt, mm-hmm. there's some delusion present. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that sense of self it, um, itself comes from. Uh, a delusional process. Mm-hmm. And um, so when the sense of, what I'm coming to is the sense of free will seems related to, the feeling of free will seems related to this process of self. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the step that I've made just now is that as that, because I've had experiences so free when free will that, be delusional? Well, no, no, that um, what that just the um, the the experience when the sense of self falls away mm-hmm. has, in my experience, felt like in a sense there's no there's nothing to choose, there's nothing mm-hmm. to do. Well, the the, cho- the choice or the the act of making a self is most clearly felt when there's a conflict. And when there's no conflict, it's very hard to find it, but it's there. So the, the, the thought that I had, or the, the question, I guess, is when the sense of self is not operating, is free will not relevant? Okay, if, there is, if you've reached the point where there's no choice at all being made, and we're here, we're talking about awakening, that's, that's, when, self would be, <laughs> that's when self would be inoperative. You do have the problem, though, that sometimes you have a really blissful, very clear state of mind. And because it's not being challenged and because it's not being threatened, the self-defense goes down, but it's not totally gone. That's what you have to watch out for. Um, when you say that in the present you can have your karma come past action mm-hmm. and causes, and it, it isn't either or a thing, is it? Can it both? Well, they tend they, past and present karma tend to work together. Uh-huh. In fact, if it if it were not for your present karma, you wouldn't even be experiencing past karma. And this, this is one of the the, the tricky parts of the. Of the, yeah. the equation, I mean, this is why awakening is possible. Otherwise, you know, you would have to experience all your past karma before you could get out. And the Buddha said, "Well, that that would put you in here forever." Yeah. Okay. Yes. But it's the fact that you are participating; you're making choices in the present moment. There is still some engagement with past karma. But if those, if there were a, a moment in the present moment where it's totally devoid of intention, uh-huh. there would be no experience of the past karma. You'd be out of the system. 
So some of your intent, so your your intention can also be a combination of right. You're taking you're taking the potentials from the past and you're creating a present experience. And in that moment, there's the free freedom. There yeah, there is there is there is the, there is the choice available to us. Now, for most of us, we don't sense it. There's a choice not to get involved. Now, in order to see that, I mean, this is why the path is a gradual path. It takes developing a lot of sensitivity to see where precisely that choice is, where that freedom is. But it's there. That's the good news. The bad news is you've got to work on your sensitivity. <laughs> But the, the other good news is it's something you can do. Okay, let's move on a little bit. That's one negative kind. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Jesus. Okay, now, passage six, the Buddha works out some of the relationships that, that um, this, that conditionality applies to. This is basically the standard list for dependent core arising. And we could talk a couple days about this, but I just want to focus on a few things. One is the role that intention plays in all of this. First, you start out with from ignorance as a requisition, a requisite condition come fabrications. Now, another term for fabrications is intention. So intentions immediately grow out of ignorance. That's one place that they play a role in here. Then you go down the list. From fabrications, you come comes consciousness. From consciousness, as a requisite, requisite condition, comes name and form. Now, name and form include, under the name part, it includes intention, attention, feeling, perception, and contact. Now, this is the other place where karma comes in. And we're going to be focusing on those, those two factors, the factors of name and form and the factor of fabrication. Because karma plays, two role, two plays, you know, plays a role in two of the factors of dependent core rising. And notice these factors come prior to sensory contact. And even before you've had contact with the senses, you tend to be primed by your tendencies, by your past habits. Um, and a classic question is, okay, if a defilement arises, does it? Is your mind just sort of sitting there, minding its own business, being perfectly innocent, and all of a sudden, bang, something comes in and creates desire. Something comes in and creates anger. And the answer is no. Sometimes you're out looking for something to desire. You're out looking for something to get angry about. And this is why we have the internet. <laughs> <laughs> You switch it on, you know, we talk radio. I'd like to get worked up about something. Let's hear Rush Limbaugh again. <laughs> and depending on where you're coming from, you can get worked up in two very different ways, you know. Um, but that's the only reason you want to listen to things like that. So a lot of it is we already come with a certain intention that we want out of our experience, and then we create the experience as a result of the intention. So that's, if, if, if that's, that's the take-home point from today. Okay? Our intentions shape our experience. And what's coming in from the past is just potentials. Our present desire, our present intention, is what actually gives a final form to your current experience. Okay? 
We'll come back to a couple of the other factors in dependent core rising. But notice also here that it goes down the list. You've got from the sixth sense media, then you have feeling, craving, clinging, becoming, and then birth. Um, and as we'll be talking later in a minute, one of the principles of complex causal systems is what they call scale invariance, which means that on different scales, the same things are happening. Like if you ever looked at the Mandelbrot set, you know, that wild set, and it's got that, it starts out with that basically that bug shape. And then if you zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, you find more little bugs. Pretty much the same shape. Or if you take a picture of a coastline, if you don't have any other frame of reference, you don't know ex how close you are to the coast because the same pattern, you know, plays out on little on the little tiny scale as it does on the large scale. It's called a fractal. Yeah. And the thing about fractals is, as I said, it's scale invariance. What happens on the small scale is pretty sim is similar to what's happening on the large scale and vice versa. When the Buddha is talking about birth, he's talking about two things. He's talking about the birth of attachment in the present moment. He's also talking about the birth of a being. Because it turns out that's his definition of a being. It's what you are as attachment. And so it applies on both scales. This is why when you read Dependent Core Rising, it seems like the Buddha is, is switching on you all the time. Sometimes it seems psychological, and sometimes it seems more cosmological, like under the frame of becoming. Becoming can, ex can refer to this world that we're in, and also can refer to thought worlds, these worlds that appear in your mind. When you have a certain sense of a world and a certain sense of who you are in that world, it's both on what we call the micro level happening in your mind and also this macro level is also a becoming. So when the Buddha, as he goes through dependent core rising, he will switch his frame of reference, sometimes what we, we would class as psychological and other things that we would class more as cosmological. For him, it goes back and forth because of this principle of scale invariance. What's happening on the small level is also the same thing happening on the large level. So just want you to keep that in mind. Okay. okay, passage seven. Here the Buddha goes down. This is where he defines karma as intention. Now it would be really nice if the Buddha were really clear and consistent in the way he uses the word karma. Like you know, in English we say, "Oh, that's my karma." And sometimes it means you're talking about your past action, and sometimes you're talking about your present affliction. And there's a technical term. They say, well, the action itself is the karma, and the result is vipaka. It's another term entirely. But in the early Buddhist texts, they have the same problem. Sometimes the Buddha talks about the action, the karma, as being your intention, and other times he says the result of your intention, result in your intention, that is also your karma. Look on passage eight. What is old karma? The eye is to be seen as old karma fabricated in will, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the intellect. Okay, old karma here is basically the result of what you did in the past. So I'm just warning you that the Buddha is not totally consistent in how he uses the word karma. Sometimes it's intention, sometimes it's the result of intention. You've got to keep that in mind. But if we're looking purely at intention, let's get back to passage 7. Okay. What is the cause by which karma comes into play? Contact. Now the word contact here 
there are two places where contact appears in dependent core arising. One is as the factor, you know, contact between the six senses and their objects. And the other is as a factor of name, which is earlier on. And given the context there, it seems to mean contact inside the mind. You have an intention, you also have a feeling, okay, you have some attention, these things make contact. And as a result of that, an intention arises. So it's kind of intramental contact we're talking about here. What's the diversity in karma? There is karma to be experienced in hell. <laughs> you thought the Buddhists didn't have hell, huh? Karma to be experienced in the realm of common animals. Karma to be experienced in the realm of the hungry shades or the hungry ghosts. Karma to be experienced in the human world. Karma to be experienced in the heavenly worlds. Um, okay, these are different places where you can experience karma. And there's a certain type of karma that will tend to lead you in that direction. Now notice I use the word tend. It's not automatic, but that's where the tendency goes. What's the result of karma? The result of karma is three sorts. That which is arises right here and now, that which is arises later in this lifetime, and that which arises following that. Okay, the, here he's talking about the length of time that the karma takes to yield fruit. And then finally, what is the cessation of karma from the cessation of contact, or contact in the mind? is the cessation of karma. Justice, noble, eightfold path, right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is the path of practice leading to the cessation of karma. Now notice that. Okay, it is a path of practice. It too is a type of karma. But it's such a karma that leads to the point where you don't have to do karma anymore. Okay. Do you have any questions on that passage? So this that last part suggests that with nibbana with liberation, one doesn't generate any more karma. Okay, the, the nibbana itself has is has no related to karma at all. But the person who has attained nibbana, they say, um, the person still has intentions, but the intentions don't bear fruit, karmic fruit. Could you explain that? <laughs> <laughs> I would have to be an arahant to explain it. You'd have to be an arahant to understand. <laughs> Can't you fudge it? <laughs> <laughs> the closest I can fudge. I mean, the image the Buddha gives is it's like each time you have an intention, you create a seed. He says that the arahant knows how to create intentions and burn them. You burn the seed immediately. This is the only place in the canon where the Buddha talks about burning karma. You've probably heard sometimes that you, when you meditate and you just sit with some pain, you've burned off that karma. No. But it's the, only the arhans can burn off karma. But as I said, we're not the people to discuss that. <laughs> no one has any questions about hell or the hungry ghosts? Or <laughs> Greg, do you have the mic? In, in the burning karma, the um, on awakening, isn't that the the image of burning of the fuel being gone? The, um, mm -hmm. the you're Upadana. mixing your met you're mixing your metaphors. Here. Am I? Yeah, yeah. Uh. I, well, mm -hmm. the awakening is the is the 
the end of the fuel. The fuel is not the fuel of clinging. The fuel of clinging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's not connected with burning the karma. karma? No, no, no. Okay. I'm getting the fires mixed up. You're getting your fires mixed up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. Can you repeat what you were talking about, um, the relationship between the past karma and the present, present karma? karma? Something I, I kind of missed, the part where um, if you didn't have... Present karma, you wouldn't experience past karma? Yeah. yeah. Okay, here we're talking about karma as intention. And our experience of the world is driven by our intentions. As the Buddha said, from ignorance comes fabrications. Fabrications are a kind of intention. And then from that intention, we go out and we pick up things from the, from the six senses to create what we want out of those six senses. Now, the, the realm that we have to choose from, that's, that's caused by our past karma. I mean, there are all these potentials out there that we can choose from at any one moment. But it's our present intention that goes for one thing or another. And that's why we experience what we do. And the Buddha is saying, if you can train the mind so that it has a moment when there is no intention. Now, this doesn't mean the moment, the intention to stop intention, because that too is an intention. This is why it's tricky. But there can, the mind can be brought to a point where it just stops intending. And at that point, there's no experience of the world of the senses at all. And at that moment, there's no experience of any kind of past karma. And that's stream entry. So there's just not the experience of it, but then it... Well, for the stream entry, then stream entry kind of comes comes back (coughs) and continues experiencing the results of past karma, but it's a different relationship. And for the arahant, it's even a a differenter relationship. Mm -hmm. They're not creating any any new karma at all. They're just taking in the experience of the past and and just dropping it, dropping it, dropping it, dropping it, dropping it. Without having to intend to drop it, it just drops. And then when all their old karma runs out, that's it. Total nirvana. So there's like some active working with the... Right, your mind is active all the time. Mm -hmm. You're not a blank slate. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, I just had a question about about your mind. Um, I think I've answered it, but uh, uh, in the body, there's a mind, and uh, in the mind, there's a body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got these potentials that you're creating this experience from. And the image the Buddha gives is a field that's filled with seeds. And you choose to water certain seeds so they grow. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the Buddha's approach is not that you know we are a mind in a body or a body in a mind. We create both of those assumptions for different, for different purposes. But we have we have different intentions, which is why we create those different senses, of whether we're in the body or the body is in us. Yeah. So. Both of those are fabrications. Um, 
when I had a cardiac arrest <laughs> and uh, left me with a noxic brain injury, <laughs> I, my memory was only letting me see a day, maybe. <laughs> Holding on to that day still is. <laughs> and then I had a, a stroke after uh, well, that's two years ago, no, four <laughs> years ago. <laughs> that's something like that. Anyway, um, I saw things in my experience mm -hmm. that would make me think all this funny stuff mm -hmm. about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then there's another part of me that sits back from all of this and knows everything is just fine mm -hmm. the way it is. Mm -hmm. So there's like two me's. There are lots of you's. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's true. And the there's different lots. ones that you, different ones that you're going to take on is you. And then there's the you that says it's all fine. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, mm -hmm. that's right. And that one, okay, those are all still fabrications. Yes. Okay. And you fabricate them for different purposes. And given what your body was going through at that time, it made more sense to you to think, okay, this is the mind that's got this body in here. Then the mind can help kind of fashion it. Maybe I can get this body to go work again. Yeah. And that was a useful assumption yeah. for that purpose. Yes, it was. And it did. And it, it, did. it got and it itself did. back. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. it did. It yeah. worked itself right where it is today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so the question is, is that always going to be a useful assumption? And the answer is no. You use it when it's useful and then you put it aside. When it's not. Yeah. I mean, you had to pull yourself together or else you were going to go, right? And so if you say, gee, if I'm just depend on the body, this and look at this body, there's not much <laughs> not much left to it. But I've got these powers of mind, I can put them together and I put this back together again. Yes. There are stories of a John Sawat when he was in a coma and he had he had this sense of himself just kind of sitting by his bed looking at his body. And he could see all the monitors and everything. He looked at the monitors and he wasn't a doctor or anything, because those numbers don't look right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And so he said, well, let's change this one. Let's change that one. And so and that, that looks better. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so then, you know, after he came out of the coma, he mentioned this to the doctors. And he said, you know, we wondered how that happened because you looked really bad one night. Next morning we came in, all the numbers looked great, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so there's something in there that was working. It's okay. I've got this power of mind that's not totally dependent on the body. I can do this. Yes. And that's an assumption you needed at that point. But it's still, you know, it's it's a it's a you that you've taken on because it served a function. Yes. You won't. I can almost get over the hump. No. <laughs> <laughs> I can see uh, where this is headed, mm -hmm. and uh, I just have to find a way to to jump. Well, again, it's it's the Buddha was kept focused on what's the where's the stress here? What stress am I adding? That's where you're going to see your intentions, mm. and that's when you say, "Oh, I'm adding this. I don't have to," and then you drop that. Because if you get into the question of which one of those is the real you, you're going to get just it's a hall of mirrors. And the way out is to say, "Where's the stress even in here?" Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. Keep that in mind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes? Mm -hmm.
ask. Um, so, in kind of relating to what she was talking to about these realms, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the um, Kalama Sutta where it talks about the four assurances, you know, mm-hmm. and if there isn't another mm-hmm. world, you know, mm-hmm. and so on. I think of these realms sometimes as like metaphorical. I mean, there's the that you live in these different realms here and now at different times. That's becoming on the micro level, and these are called, uh, these are also becoming on the macro level. And again, the Buddha said they're parallels. It's the same process as operating in each case. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you are experiencing these here and now, but there is a greater. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because in each case there's becoming, it comes from a desire. And you think about this. We talked about just now about your sense of self being built around a desire. You want that kind of happiness, and do you have the powers to do this? Okay, you, know, you gather whatever powers you can, and you go for it. Um, and that's also going to affect your sense of the world around you. Which parts of the world are relevant to what you want? Which parts are obstacles to what you want? And which parts are totally irrelevant? And that's going to define your world. Like if a dog walked in here right now, the dog would not be interested in much. There's not much for a dog, right? So a dog would wander out. This is not its world. Mm-hmm. There's that far side cartoon where, where people are running around the city, there are atomic bombs going off on the horizon and everything, and this guy has come to a corner, and there's a dog by the, on, the, on the curb, and there's another dog in the car. And the caption, and they look at each other, and in the meantime, everybody's just kind of running around all over the place, and not, you know, it's, it's the end of the world. And the caption was, finally, Fido saw something that captured his interest. <laughs> you know, like the old story, you know, if someone's an alcoholic, they go into your house, they'll know immediately where the alcohol is kept, right? You know, that's their world. And so that happens on the micro level, but it also happens on the macro level. At the moment when you die, it's the desires you have are going to determine which of these macro becomings you're going to go for. Keep that in mind. We have time for one more question, and then we have to... Way in the back. Intention um, brings this to mind. I had a disturbing experience this morning. It's not unlike some others I've had, and I'll give you two examples of things that happen differently. Um, I, I crushed a mouse with a brick because my cat had brought it in so badly wounded that I thought it was in a lot of pain and couldn't live, really, beyond. I didn't find any regret in that, although it was disturbing. Mm-hmm. I had an experience 40 years ago that has never left my consciousness at times, and that is by the side of a road. It was another experience with an animal, probably a possum, mm-hmm. uh, that appeared to me to be so in pain uh, that I wanted to take it out of its pain, and I found a large piece of wood and hit it, and it got up. <laughs> and Did it hit you back? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> and I continued to hit it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, thinking, I mean, my judgment wasn't changed, mm-hmm. but it mm-hmm. certainly was altered by the, I, I didn't yeah. think it was capable of giving up. Uh-huh, uh-huh. What do I do with all that? Intention, result, etc. Okay. Um, watch out for compassionate people with big objects in their hands. <laughs> that's, that's really all I can say. <laughs> So there's there's nothing you spread lots of goodwill to the possum and the mouse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to ever do this again. Um, um, I mean, you never know when you're putting them out of misery because you may be putting them into more misery next time around. Yeah, I definitely know that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You, are you? Am I hearing from you correctly? You don't ever try to put. Anything out of you, no. you never you take that literally. Don't mm-hmm. kill if you it looks kill. like it's Period. horrible yeah. mm-hmm. uh, pain and it can't possibly go on in your judgment. Could you yeah, it'll, 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 it'll probably die in its own rate with a lot more pain over you don't time. Know. You don't know what, what pain they're going to experience afterwards. That's the problem. Well, we don't know a whole lot of things, but yeah, we make yeah, assessments yeah, every yeah, moment. Yeah. Okay, but the, um, our assessment is at least it's it's not it's not suffering in in my range of vision anymore. Mm-hmm. So that all you know, I mean, you say, okay, I, I don't see it suffering anymore, and there's that there's that part of us that just doesn't want to see them suffering. But there's mental vision. Just because I turn my eyes away from something doesn't mean I yeah, lose well, consciousness. You, okay, it's, again, um, your thought. Okay, I, I left it suffering on. I feel responsible for it. And the question is, are you responsible for it? Two, where are they going to go after they die? That may be even more suffering. Mm-hmm. And this that, obvious that's, why, that's why, I mean, we had lots of really wounded dogs back in the monastery in Thailand. And you just kind of learned how to care for them and kind of let them go at their own pace. And this obviously goes for insects. And I mean, that's where it yeah, comes yeah, up mostly yeah, yeah. for me, not mm-hmm. with large animals. Mm-hmm. Okay. But as I said, watch out for compassionate people with large objects. <laughs> <laughs> they see you in pain. They may want to put an end to your pain. Um. <laughs> okay. okay. Question in the back. Do you find that intention, whether good or bad, is an ego-driven directive? It doesn't have to be. Can you give that an example when it's What not? do you mean by ego? Well, it's a desire. There's going to be a desire. To yeah, there's going to, there's going to be a desire behind the intention. And is that an ego-driven assumption? Is ego bad? Well, I'm asking, is it? No, not necessarily, no. And when is it good? When it's good is when it's for not afflicting yourself, not afflicting others, bringing about long-term health, welfare and happiness. Then it's good. Okay, um, we've got monks who need to eat. <laughs>